1: Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. So, December, hey? Hard to believe we're only weeks away from the holidays. I don't know about you, but it just doesn't feel real yet. This steaming, festering dumpster fire that is 2020 is actually coming to a close? I guess I shouldn't speak too soon, though. Every horror fan knows that it's just when the hero thinks they're in the clear that the killer pops up for one last big scare. Uh, Did I just jinx us by saying that? I hope not. Uh, Just no pitchforks and torches if I did, okay? Before we get started this week, I'd like to take a second to doff my cap to our newest patron, Lawrence Browning. Your generous support gives me the kind of goosebumps, only the laughter of a child drifting up from the cellar in the middle of the night can raise. If you'd like to support the show, you know the drill. Patreon.com slash Tales to Terrify. Ad-free episodes, bonus content, we've got an extra story coming for Christmas, and a cool little pack of swag every couple of months, including a bonus for the holidays. Of course, if you don't have the extra wallet space, that's okay, too. A five-star review on iTunes is an amazing gift as well, and it's a huge help for the show. Like this recent review from Chris Ten Hill. Thank you for making such a wonderful podcast. I can tell how much hard work and love goes into making it, and it's helped me get through 2020. Working from home and never leaving my apartment has been tough this year, but you've helped me get through it and feel like I'm hanging out with friends. My very creepy, Great storytelling friends, thanks for all you do. And thank you, Chris, for listening and for taking the time to write such a kind, heartfelt review. It actually really means a lot to us to know that our seeping darkness has helped make the world feel a little brighter. Speaking of making things a little brighter, if you've got horror fans on your gift list this year why not get them a little Tales to Terrify merch and help support the show at the same time? Every Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday until Christmas, we've got 30% off everything in our new shop. Just visit com and click on the merch button at the top of the homepage. That'll take you directly to our Public store, where you can browse all the goodies. For our travels this week, we're headed to a little community called Riverton on the Icelandic River. And no, we haven't left Canada just yet. As it turns out, the province of Manitoba has a history firmly tied to the country of Iceland. In the late 1800s, a group of Icelandic immigrants, fleeing intense volcanic activity at home, traveled to Canada and settled near Lake Winnipeg. And the area they now called home became known as... New Iceland. Riverton sits just up the Icelandic River from Lake Winnipeg. A quaint little community, a place that's not so much a destination itself than it is a place to drive past on the way between Winnipeg and Cottage Country. But for a tiny farming community, it's got a surprising amount of history. And much of that history is centered on nearby Ness Cemetery. Until 2010, when a local heritage group set up an angel statue to mark its location, you'd never have known there was a cemetery at Ness at all. There were no crosses or gravestones, no buildings, roads, or fences either. But buried beneath the earth on this small plot of land are the remains of as many as 100 people. Around 1880, An outbreak of smallpox tore through the area. Dozens of people from the already tiny community died, many of which were children, some as young as only a few weeks. And Nest Cemetery was where they were laid to rest, beneath wooden markers. The population became so small after the outbreak that there were few people left to care for the cemetery and with the area also prone to flooding from the nearby river, it quickly became overgrown and neglected. Now, if you know anything about Nordic cultures, they're steeped in myth and superstition. The connection between this world and the next is something that's deeply respected. By most people, anyway. Magnus Halgromson, though, didn't care much for tradition. He wasn't bothered by superstition or, it seemed, even the concept of respect for the dead. Looking for a place to set up his new homestead closer to town, Halgrimson decided he liked the look of the spot, and he didn't care one bit if it was already occupied by the dead. The land was well-situated, with tiny Neskill Creek nearby providing a perfect place for him to moor his fishing boat. Halgrimson didn't just build next to the cemetery, though. No, the spot he chose for his home was right in the center of it. He took the time to haul off and dispose of the wooden grave markers, and then he even dug into the earth itself to build a cellar. It's almost as though he relished the thought of building over top of the dead. He named the farmstead Nastrond, meaning Shore of Corpses, a place in the afterlife of Norse mythology reserved for murderers and criminals. Sounds like a real fun guy, doesn't he? But Halgrimsson didn't end up living there all that long. He died less than ten years after the homestead was finished. A painful, grisly death at the hands of a bleeding tumor. Unsurprisingly. His wife and kids. Okay, surprising that he had wife and kids. Wasted little time after his death before packing their things and moving away from Ness. In an attempt to make the location a little less morbid, it was renamed graftarness which translates to Burial Point. Although most often it was simply referred to as Ness, but the change in name didn't do much to alleviate the darkness that had moved in, and the abandoned farmhouse became the source of many eerie tales. Gurumor J. Guttormsen, gotta love Nordic names, lived not far from the homestead, and he'd had one hell of an evening, full of drinks and food and games and more drinks, and his luck with the ladies seemed to be strong for a change, too. He'd been chatting up a pair of young women, and they seemed to be into him. So, when they decided to set out for home, he did the gentlemanly thing and offered to walk them home. I can't imagine he had any ulterior motives, of course. But when they reached the girl's property, and the two women actually disappeared into their house without inviting him in, I'm sure he was a little disappointed. The alcohol had mostly worn off by that point, though, and he debated whether or not to head back to the festivities, but they'd been winding down when he left. Instead, he figured he'd make the smart choice and set off for home himself. Guttormsen lived just south of the old Ness homestead, and he often had to walk past it on his daily travels. It was eerie, for sure, even in the light of day but he'd never given a whole lot of thought to it. As he followed the path through the tall summer grasses, though, he could make out the silhouette of the building in the moonlight. An unseasonable chill ran down his spine, and he picked up his pace. The rains had been plentiful that year, and the waters of the river were high, turning much of the land into marsh. The lone, dry path curved close around the edge of the abandoned property, uncomfortably close to the empty house. The grass danced and whispered under the breath of the midnight breeze. The creek murmured softly in the back. As he followed the path that curved closer and closer to the building, there was another sound, too. Since it had come into view, Guttormsen hadn't taken his eyes off of the house, but now that he was around the other side, he could see the cellar door lay open. A yawning black mouth in the base of the building. And from inside of that abyss drifted a noise. A soft, high, soothing voice. A woman's voice, or a child. Come in, it beckoned. Won't you please come in? The voice was Too relaxed, too easy, too sweet to be anything good. No living person would call so calmly from the pitch black basement of an abandoned house in the middle of the night. Gottormsen let the icy chill of fear wash over him before sprinting away from the house at full speed. Keeping his feet dry was the least of his worries and he splashed a straight line away from the house through the marsh. By the time he crashed through the door of his home, he was soaked through and pale with terror. Strange voices in the middle of the night weren't the only things emanating from the house, either. Neighbors from across the river reported seeing strange lights drifting in and out of the window, and others saw several shambling black creatures in and about the property. Some believed that the creatures were a group of Uppfackninger, physical, living corpses with immense strength, pulled from Icelandic myth, that had taken up residence there. No doubt the disturbed, vengeful remains of those who had once been buried at Ness. A theory that was given even more weight when not long after the sightings, the corpse of a mangled horse was found nearby. Torn open, entrails strewn about the pasture. Of course, not all of the creepiness of Ness Cemetery is reserved for history or the supernatural. As I mentioned before, there's not much left to mark Ness Cemetery other than the stone angel that watches over the property. The homestead has long since rotted away and been reclaimed by the land. But the land itself occasionally delivers reminders of the graveyard's presence. The earth at Ness tends to be fairly unstable as a result of erosion and the constant ebb and flow of the marshland around it. That means that the remains that once lay buried deep in the marshy earth have a habit of working their way up to the surface. Bones and skulls have been known to emerge from the ground, seemingly of their own will. But even these grisly reminders don't compare to the more modern, hackle-raising tales that some visitors have reported when exploring the area around Ness. Voices, it said, can still sometimes be heard drifting up out of the marshy soil. Small, soft, gentle voices that sweetly call out. Come in, they say. Oh, please, come in. Voices that seem to have a physical effect, a pull that can be hard to fight, beckoning you, pulling you deeper into the swamp, into the murky waters, calling you to join them. Our first story this evening comes from Leah Capgrass. Leah Capgrass specializes in unsavory fiction, with a focus on the adventures of a serial strangler and his partner, a very responsible cannibal. She currently co-writes the webcomic, Modus Operandi, and will continue to do so long after she finishes her M.D. Children of the Night, join me for Leah Capgrass's Red Lotus, a Tales to Terrify original.
2: I screwed up. Get the fuck off me. He wasn't fast enough and I had the sense to kick him with a foot. It didn't feel attached to my leg and whether I was just that slow or he was learning, it didn't make full contact and he scuffled off out of sight. Consciousness spun a piecemeal. I hate this. The neuropathic pain was maddening. typhlitic. I couldn't think. Did I have memories? My hands and feet burned. I swept the dirt out of my eyes nimbly. Scratched myself and feel little of it. My heart fibulated, and a surge of nausea hit me. I wanted to throw up. I did. Ugh. Taste of rotten blood and something else, too. There are a minute, but it's easy to see once you know what you're looking for. And it was clumps of fly eggs. That pissed me off the most. How long was I dead? Hey. Yeah? I can barely hear, but yet I knew he was there. His eyes were all big with old tears. And this was the only time he looked like the kid he was. How long you been here? A pause. Out with it, fucking Christ. Eighteen hours. Okay, I screwed up somewhere. You thirsty? What's your name again? James. Another pause. Thane? Gimme a cigarette, Thane. When he left, I heaves again. A lot of stuff came up shards of black blood, stunned bow flies, another fistful of eggs. It was bound to happen with how hot this summer's been. That's just how things go once in a while. Without a cigarette, I didn't know what to do with my hands, and I ended up scanning my body with them. That helped. My fingers felt delicate, sensitive again. Skin's intact. Clothes were not. I pulled an index finger through one shirt hole, then another, and another, another, then a big one. I like this shirt. He emptied the magazine before I got here, but you were already. ready. Thane was there before I had a chance to push him away. He lit my cigarette for me, and I relished in blowing the first smoke in his face. He blinked and said nothing. I did it again until he moved. In this light, I couldn't see him, and I didn't care. Go on, I said. I didn't sound like myself. Hopefully nothing laid eggs in my throat. That's it. They buried you and left. And you dug me up? Yeah. Good boy. I closed my eyes and took a long drag. Did I scream? Some. Hmm. Did you eat yet? A little. Should I feed him? Did he expect to be fed? What a goddamn pain. This is why I should have sold him when I had the chance. It's been at least two years, and see? Kids suck the soul right out of you. The words fell out all at once. I'm not hungry, but I can wait until you're hungry. I smoked in silence until the light changed. The stars winked out with a crawl of dawn, and I finally smelled the sea. I remember the dock. I remember agreeing to meet Daniel, and I remember the car tires eating the gravel as he pulled up late. I remember his buddy and his tiny little Glock, but who owed who first here? Probably drugs, I guessed, and probably some snide shit I said. I can't afford to keep running my mouth. Hmm? I said, give me a minute and we'll get breakfast. Ah. Uh, I looked at him then. He wasn't a big kid, but definitely nothing you want to sell in an auction. Not baby-faced or soft or pale or shy. A and blocker, something that would delay puberty. Wouldn't give him something he never had. James or Thane, whatever, was feral and dark. But the childish parts of him just weren't there anymore, unless he got upset. And that was only when he cried. He moved in a way that you couldn't hear. Even if it wasn't what you would call calculated. He had intent. An intelligent eye. I don't think anyone would want what he had. An orphan of a bad breed of some poduck town. Do you want? Want what? Breakfast? I said we'd go. Do you want to see? Don't want to see what, for Christ's sakes? I said, and I stood up and my body stopped making noise. A breeze rolled through and he lifted his nose to it. See? It's just not a marketable trait. Creepy's what it is. He seemed to lose his nerve and regain it all the same moment. Then he pointed to our left. When he saw me look that way, he ran his hand over his mouth and his doggish teeth, stared at the ground, and sucked his lip briefly. A pleasant taste of shame got me to stomp through the long grass to find what I might want to see. Daniel's face had a hole in it. When I rocked forward on my heels and cleared the flies, I saw something carved out in the space between his sinuses and his tongue. He and his buddy, with the tiny glock, both bodies, edges chewed, swollen from the heat. Something was up with their hands, like parts were missing. That leaked through their clothes, and their money would be wet if I tried to search for it now. But I grinned anyway. Serves the fuckers right. The kid caught up with me. I watched him pick his way around, appraising it all as a whole then tracing his eye on old fractions of violence. The contorted limbs, the teeth scattered like seeds, the blistering hematomas, the eyeless holes. He stared in a way that said, next time, I can do better. I didn't see a baseball bat or a pipe or anything laying around. What did he use? It almost be worth asking. You thought I would want to see this, yeah? I flicked my cigarette butt his way. When our eyes met, it hit him. I like that. Rip the clothes off and get the money. Thane didn't waste time. Maybe he didn't need a buyer. Don't bury him. Maybe he needed a job. boy. Let him rot. Maybe I didn't screw up.
1: That was Leah Capgrass's Red Lotus, as read by Brian Dobbins. Brian has been a fan of horror for a long time. Whether he's binging horror podcasts or teaching high school students special effects makeup, Brian surely has horror on the brain. With a background in theater and new media, focusing on building his freelance business, Dobbins Media, where he uses his skills of acting, film, video editing, audio editing slash engineering, and graphic design. Brian has been working on his own podcast, RPG Character Cast, which can be found on his SoundCloud or iTunes. Or check out his Instagram for silly antics of a chubby black cat. Links are in the show notes. Thank you, Brian.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Our second story comes from Timothy G. Huguenin. Timothy G. Huguenin grew up in the mountains of West Virginia. Though he often roams the country, his soul is always haunting those dark Appalachian hills. He is the author of the horror novel When the Watcher Shakes and of short stories found online and in print. You can find out more about him and his writing at tghuganin.com. Link is in the show notes. Listen with me, children of the night, to Timothy G. Huganin's The Apocalypse of Moses, a Tales to Terrify original.
3: I found this notebook in Moses' bag. He said he packed it for me. I don't know how he did that, but he must have since it has my name on the front corner in gold letters, as I reckon you already noticed before you opened it up. And sometimes I doubt it and I close it again and look just to see for certain and sure enough it always says Tommy right there in shiny gold cursive imprinted on dark brown leather. Moses says things to me every so often. I don't usually understand what he means, only I just write stuff he says down in here and think about it later. Sometimes some starts to make sense after a while. Usually I start to kind of feel what he means in my heart, even though I can't never seem to get my brain to sort out all the words to explain it. So I decided I should write the start of all of this in here, and maybe some of the middle, eventually too, in case I want to remember it better later. Moses says it's good to write things, says it helps to remember and also to understand things better. And I reckon one day, maybe, I really will get old and forgetful like Aunt Martha, and then I might want to read it. I'm thirteen while I'm writing this, so I know a lot. But maybe I don't know as much as I will later on. But I would bet you the hair on my Aunt Martha's wrinkly old chin that I wouldn't have never met Moses if Petey and Cole and me didn't sneak out of Miss Judy's English class on my thirteenth birthday to smoke some of Petey's daddy's cigars behind the school. Just now I ask Moses if I should write that, if he thought it was true, and he says to write it down. Well, Miss Judy somehow got wise to it, though how she figured it out is beyond me, since me and Cole and Petey were extra sneaky about things. Especially Petey, since it was his daddy's special cigars, after all. But the wind blows where it wants to. That's another thing Moses said once. Still not sure about it, but it sounds good. And we three boys got sent straight to Mr. Nelson's office. Mr. Nelson called Petey's daddy and Cole's mama and my Aunt Martha and made sure we three would all get good whoopings when we got home. Actually, Aunt Martha got a head start on mine before we had left the school's parking lot. But I had just turned 13, see, so I didn't cry that time. Aunt Martha was quiet all the way back home. I kept checking her face to see if she would look at me or say something, since the quietness was almost worse than a yelling. But she kept her eyes on the road, and her lips were a tight gray line, about as tight and gray as her hair that was all balled up on the back of her head. I don't know what happens to ladies when they get old that they think twisting their hair all up into the ball in the back of their head is a good idea, but, like Moses says, the wind blows where it wants to. We pulled up to the big white house across the road from the First High Point Fellowship. Aunt Martha has lived in that house, lived for centuries it seems like, and that's where she raised me up until then. When we got out of the car, I braced myself. Since I knew that during the car ride she'd been storing it all up inside and planning on how to best give me her yelling in order that I felt like the sorry heathen that I was. Once my feet hit the driveway, she got out of the car and slammed her door. For a couple seconds, she only looked at me. Then that tight gray line under her nose not the hairy one, but her lips, I mean opened up and here it all came, all about what in heaven's name I was thinking, and she thought she'd done raise me better than that, knowed she'd raised me better, but all she thought I wanted to do was try to give her more tears, to cry and gray on her head. And I told her, I, I said, Aunt Martha, I don't think it makes much sense to say I'm giving you more gray. I ain't sure you could get much more. Well... That earned me a good pop on the mouth, Was stung pretty bad since it was her left hand, the one with her old wedding ring on it. But I still didn't cry none.
2: "'I
3: won't take none of your smart remarks, young man,' she said. This confused me because she was always telling me to study harder and use my brain more, but I figured I'd better not say anything more for a while. So she continued, "'All this time I've done my best to do right by you,' to raise you up in the way the child shall go, and all by myself without the help of your Uncle David Guy rest his soul? And this is the thanks I get? Listen here, Thomas. And here she held out a long bony finger in front of my nose and wagged it up and down. You won't amount to anything in this world before the Lord, not on the track you're headed down, cavorting with those hooligans. You won't end up like your mother, the ingratitude. "'You could still be living in Augustus Valley "'if it weren't for me taking you in "'out of the kindness of my own heart. "'Augustus Valley!' "'She spit a little when she said this. "'You know who lives in Augustus Valley, don't you?' "'I, uh, my mother?' "'I said, although I knew my mother had long ago left Augustus Valley. "'Aunt Martha herself had told me once "'that she'd run off with some cowboy or something.' Though I ain't never seen a cowboy in West Virginia. Not the real one these ways. I just thought maybe Aunt Martha had forgotten, like the way she forgets some days that she already took her medicine and takes another. Bums and drug abusers live in Augustus Valley, Thomas. Leeches. Good for nothings. Do you want to end up like that? Do you want to end up a drunkard? No, ma'am. Because that's what you'll be if you go down this road with those... those hooligans. But... Aunt Martha, what do you want me to do? Stop talking to my best friends? If that's what it takes, you can never be too careful. That was one of Aunt Martha's favorites, one that she set her clock by. You can never be too careful. I knew better than to argue against that one, so I just said, yes, ma'am. And then Aunt Martha's lips tightened all up again, and I could see that she'd done said all that she'd planned to, and wanted to wait longer and store up some more for later. She removed her finger from my nose and shoved me toward the front door of her house. "'Get to your room,' she said. I opened the door and started up the stairs. "'Actually,' she called after me, sounding real tired, "'before you do that, bring me my medication. "'I don't feel well. "'I must have forgotten to take it this morning.' "'See what I mean?' and then go up and think about what you've done. There will be no supper for you tonight. I did like she said. At first I didn't mind about not getting supper, since that cigar Petey gave me had made my stomach feel real queasy. But I did feel bad for upsetting Aunt Martha so much. If I'd have known we'd get caught and she would get so upset, I never would have done it. I could tell she really was trying to do her best to make a righteous boy out of me. Once I got to my room, I thought that if I lay down, I might make my stomach feel better. Turns out I was pretty worn out after Aunt Martha's yelling, and I fell asleep about as soon as I hit my creaky old mattress. And I don't know if it was left over from the cigar, or if it was from the yelling I got, or from not eating, or... What, but the dream I had next was really something, and I thought I'd better write it down too. I dreamed I was a grown man and on my own, except I still looked the same as I do now. But it ended up that I was living in a cardboard box in Augustus Valley, just like Aunt Martha said I would. And I was walking along with Petey and Cole, we all lived in boxes next to each other although Cole's box was the nicest one, a G.E. refrigerator box. And then a woman who was my mother came out from a crusty apartment building. She was so beautiful. She had long, curly black hair and blue eyes. I've never seen my mother in real life, but I'm pretty sure she must really look like that, especially since her hair was as black as mine was. I could see when my mother looked at me, that she'd been crying. Before I could ask her what was wrong, she said to me, Run, Tommy! You gotta get out of here! And just then, in the dream, my Aunt Martha came out from the same building, yelling and carrying on. She stopped when she saw me and Petey and Cole standing there with my mother. Then she took a big white cross out of her pocket. I began to suspect then that I was dreaming, because the cross was... Way too big to fit in any normal pocket. Anyways, Aunt Martha started beating me and my mother with the cross while Petey and Cole ran away to their parents' houses. It was the middle of the night when I woke up. I could hear Aunt Martha's voice muttering softly from her room across the hall. Kind of creepy, right? My window was open and a cool spring night's breeze made the curtains float around like they were magical or something and maybe they were magical. Never mind, Moses says it was only the wind, blowing where it wants, you know. Laying there on my bed and watching my curtains float around, I started thinking about where I was going in life, and I heard about Augustus Valley from Aunt Martha, and I knew I didn't want to end up there as a lazy leech or a drug dealer or a drunkard, even if my cardboard box was as nice as Cole's was in the dream. Also, I figured maybe I was headed down the wide roads of unrighteousness, as Aunt Martha and Preacher Judd from First High Point Fellowship would say. Aunt Martha took me to First High Point every Sunday, so I knew a little bit about unrighteousness. To be honest, mostly I would daydream during the sermons. Sometimes I would think about sneaking out of my house after church to go fishing with Cole and Petey. It was next to sin to fish on the Lord's Day, Aunt Martha would say. You can never be too careful. She caught me once, and I told her I was just trying to honor the Lord, because wasn't the Lord a fisherman? And she sent me to my room. Or, more often lately, I would daydream about Mary Beth, who sits in front of me in school. She has this long, silky blonde hair, and brown eyes that remind me of the rust under the train trestle over the Augustus River. But I did hear some of Preacher Judd's sermons, enough to know what the wide roads of unrighteousness were. I knew that you surely didn't want to be a Democrat, at first of all. Almost as bad as the Democrats was having sex. There is no sex in heaven, you know. Beer is a pretty bad sin, too. And I don't remember for sure, but There must have been a sermon in there somewhere about cutting class and smoking cigars with your best friends. Those are the big ones, at least. There are other sins, too. Littler ones. Gossiping, being stuck up, hating people, and the like. I thought Preacher Judd once said that all sins are the same in the Lord's sight, but I must be remembering that wrong, because... Those first ones I said are the ones he yelled most and loudest about. And that couldn't be on accident, since Preacher Judd got a whole week in between each Sunday to store it all up and plan out his next yelling. Now, I didn't think I was a Democrat. But Cole's parents were Democrats, and they were real nice to me. I liked them, too, which was probably bad. Plus, Cole's family lived in Augustus Valley— also, whenever I saw Marybeth at school, I knew that I want to have sex a lot, so that was a bad sign. And I hadn't had any beer yet, but I had tried that cigar with Petey and Cole during class. So it seemed like if there was a wide roads of unrighteousness, I was barreling down them full speed ahead. I needed to put the brakes and get cleaned up, as Aunt Martha might say. Gotta take the exit ramp off this unholy highway, as Preacher Judd might say. I decided I would tell all this to Aunt Martha, since she was awake. I also decided to tell her that I didn't even like the cigar, and that it made me sick, and maybe that would help things. I walked over to Aunt Martha's room. The door was cracked open. It occurred to me that she might not be awake. She might only be sleep-talking so I peeked inside real quiet to check. She wasn't sleep-talking. Instead, she was on her knees at the window. Outside her window, it's a straight shot across to see the big white steeple of First High Point Fellowship, and when she got into a praying mood, she would always open up her window, set her knees down on the floor, and then prop her elbows up on the windowsill with her hands clasped. Even in the wintertime, she did this. I had lived with Aunt Martha long enough to know that the next time I ever interrupted her when she was in a praying mood would be my last. So I tiptoed back to my room, shut the door, and thought some more. I tried to think of what Aunt Martha might say to me, and then I thought maybe I ought to try to get into a praying mood of my own. So I walked over to my open window and looked out. My room's window faced the other side of town. Instead of First High Point Fellowship, all I saw was some other houses, the big maple tree that I'd sneak out by when I would go fishing, and the full moon, big and white and bright. I got to my knees. I made sure they was about a shoulder width apart, just like Aunt Martha's. Then I propped my elbows up on the window sill and clasped my hands together just like Aunt Martha's. I always figured that you had to get the angle right with those clasp hands. Tilt them just so from the wrist for some sort of spiritual antenna. I think I must have been very wrong about this because I just asked Moses about that and he only snorted a laugh. So I made the necessary adjustments, but I still felt like something was wrong. I went over everything in my head. Window? Check. Knees? Check. Elbows? Check. Hands antenna? Check. Then I realized I was still missing the steeple. I shut my eyes tight and tried hard as I could to picture a big white steeple in my head, complete with a big white cross on top, like the one Aunt Martha had beat me and my mother with in my dream. I was ready to begin. Dear First High Point Fellowship, I prayed, this is Tommy. But I didn't get any farther with my prayer because all of a sudden I heard the sound of a horse snickling in the yard below. I opened my eyes. Standing there in the moonlight was a great dark stallion, as black as my own hair and with glowing red eyes. When I say his eyes were glowing red, I don't mean like Rudolph's nose or like Christmas lights. I mean they were a low light, a reddish-orange like a campfire that has burned down to embers. While those fire-ember eyes smoldered, clouds rose from his nostrils like smoke. And sometimes I think maybe it really was smoke, too. But I'm too afraid to ask Moses this. It seems like kind of a personal question. It was surely the most beautiful, beautiful, and the most scariest thing I've ever seen. Even counting how beautiful Mary Beth is in that pink dress she sometimes wears when it's warm, and even counting how scary Aunt Martha is when she's storn up all her yellings inside for later. The horse stood there looking at me for a bit, all majestic and terrifying, with the full moon casting a silver outline all around it. I wanted to call Frant Martha, but then I remembered she was in the praying mood, and I kept my mouth shut. Also, just then, I was too scared even to speak. Then the horse spoke to me. My name is Moses, it said. I I didn't know what else to say, so I, I just said, My name is Tommy. Moses nickered again. It was a friendly sound, and despite those hot coal-fire eyes, it comforted me a little. "'I've come for you, Tommy,' Moses said. "'I know. I'm not sure why I said that, but right after I did, I realized it was the truth. "'Don't ask me to explain it any more than I can explain where the wind goes.' Then Moses stepped forward a little more until he was looking up at me from under the maple tree. He didn't have to say what he said next, because I knew that already, too. But he did anyways. Climb on my back. Those fiery eyes almost hypnotized me to climb out there without even thinking. But then Aunt Martha's voice sounded in my head. You can never be too careful. It was so loud and clear in my mind that I turned to check if she was standing behind me. Of course, she wasn't there. She was still in a praying mood at her bedroom window facing the church. But never in my life had those words felt more right for the situation as just then. So I said to Moses, My Aunt Martha says I can't never be too careful. Moses stepped back from the tree, looking a little offended and Mighty more scarier. My heart was pounding in my chest, but I wanted to please Aunt Martha, you know? I'm sorry, Moses, I said, trying to keep my voice from shaking, but I'm trying to get into a praying mood, and my Aunt Martha does that a lot, so if she says I gotta be careful, then I'd reckon that's part of getting into a praying mood. Moses snorted, and a big puff of smoke came out of his nostrils. I still haven't asked him, but I'm certain now it was smoke. "'Your Aunt Martha means well,' he said. "'But anything of worth in life requires risk.' I thought about that for a second. It didn't seem like something Aunt Martha would say at all, but it did seem right. Then again, that cigar had seemed right at the time. "'Look at you, though.' I said, if Aunt Martha was here right now, she would say you were black as sin, and anything that looks like sin is probably the same, or next to it. Moses again stared me down, a forever moment with them burning eyes of his. Then he said, You were a boy. The time is ripe for you to become a man. You alone must make this decision not your Aunt Martha. There was something about those eyes and the way the smoke came out of his nostrils in the moonlight that got me to thinking about some of Preacher Judge Yellins on horsemen and monsters and the end of the world. So I asked, Is this like the apocalypse? It is an apocalypse of sorts, but it is not what you are thinking. That was only the first of many more strange and ponderous Mosesisms to come. Another one was how he answered my next question. Are you the lord that they preach about over at First High Point? I asked. All from that assembly proclaim me, he said, but few of them have met me. Before I could... Really try to digest this one. I heard the floor creak, like Aunt Martha was standing up from her praying mood at the window. She must have heard me and Moses talking. Moses stepped under the maple again. No more time to discuss this. Climb on my back or don't. I heard Aunt Martha step out into the hall from her bedroom. I was just about to take the exit ramp, I said to Moses nervously. I was just about to get in a praying mood like my Aunt Martha. Moses shook his long, kingly horse head. His mane danced like the way Aunt Martha's old diamond ring sparkles when she turns it in the light. That way only joins onto a road that feels much safer but goes to the same place, he said. And it is just as wide. Then Aunt Martha knocked on my door. Tommy, are you all right in there? I'm okay, I said over my shoulder to the closed door. I'm just uh, trying to pray. I stuck my head back out the window. Will it be dangerous? I whispered to Moses. Yes, he said. Let me come in and pray with you, child, Aunt Martha said. I could hear the doorknob turning. Moses stomped and snorted smoke again. Now! I jumped out the window and onto the big maple's limb like I was going fishing again, except this time I clambered from the tree onto the back of the biggest talking horse I had ever seen. There was no saddle, only a bag strapped to his side. I could hear Aunt Martha above us looking for me in the room. "'Where are the reins?' I said. Do I look like a tame beast for you to steer to your own will? Moses said, and I promise you that his eyes got a brighter orange when he said that. Now hold on tight to my mane. Then Moses let out a loud, long whinny. I suspect the whole town woke up and heard it, and I suspect further that Moses meant them to. Aunt Martha certainly heard it, for as Moses took off, I heard her screaming out the window behind us, No! No! Not Tommy too! Not Tommy too! Even though it was night, the full moon lit our way as I watched all the houses zoom past. Moses pinned his ears back, and every time I thought we were going as fast as a horse ever could go, he got a little bit faster. Everything became a blur, and I turned around to see First High Point Fellowship's big, clean steeple disappear from sight. "'We're going so fast!' I said, and the wind rushing her against my face stole the sound from my words. "'We're going so fast we'll be halfway to Beckley in seconds!' We weren't going toward Beckley. We were going the other way, toward Augustus Valley. My heart sank a little bit in my chest, and I began to get nervous about my decision. Moses must have sensed it. Don't be afraid, he said. That's just some of your Aunt Martha in you. Everyone has a bit of Aunt Martha in them. You're more like her than you think. And soon the rotted old wooden sign that said Welcome to Augustus Valley flew by so fast that I couldn't even read it. And then in another second we were halfway through town where the train tracks crossed Main Street. Moses turned on the tracks just as the red light started flashing. I could hear the train whistle behind us as Moses raced along the railway towards the river. It seemed like Moses had slowed down and the train's whistle was getting louder. I turned and saw the train rushing towards us. It's gaining on us, Moses. It's going to run us over. I knew Moses could run faster than that train, so why was it catching up? Now, I didn't really cry, but I have to admit that my eyes got a little wet when I thought that maybe Moses was actually the devil, like I knew Aunt Martha would have told me, and maybe he was doing this all on purpose. Then we were on the bridge, and the train was so close I could smell the diesel and the steel and I let out a little bit of a scream, and Moses said, Hold on. And before I could even think, he turned and leaped between the trusses, and we dove down into the raging Augustus River. We were underwater for a few seconds, but it felt like minutes to me. I could hear the train rumbling on the tracks above and the whooshing of the water as it pulled us and Moses' powerful legs churning to bring us back to the surface. We emerged. I coughed the water out of my lungs and breathed in new air. For some reason, everything around me seemed clearer and brighter. Moses swam us to shore and kept galloping on into the night like nothing had happened. "'What did you do that for?' I said, still trying to shake the water out of my ears. "'Wait a minute. There was something different about that water. The Augustus River. It's usually dirty. That water was clean, almost sweet-tasting. Something's changed, hasn't it? Even the air seems different.' When Moses didn't immediately answer, I looked down at him. "'Why, you ain't black after all!' I almost shouted, You're white! Whiter than snow! Yes, Moses said as he ran. I had to go through some very dirty places on my way to get you. And I could see that he was telling the truth, because as the water dripped off up of both of us, I looked down and saw the blackness still washing off of his legs. It looked just like the time when Aunt Martha made me shower after playing in that abandoned coal mine. I had scrubbed the coal dust good with pumice soap, and eventually it had mixed with the water and ran off of my body in little black waterfalls everywhere. Open my bag, Moses said. I opened the bag. There was this notebook, a pencil, a pencil, and a little silver-handled mirror inside. Somehow, all these things were still bone-dry after a plunge in the river. Look in the mirror, Moses said. I held it up to my face. Everything looked the same, except for my hair. While most of it was still jet black, like it always had been, There was one thin streak of white running through. White like Moses is now. There is something different about that water, I said. When we jumped off that bridge, I knew where we were. But when we came out, are we still in Augustus Valley, Moses? Moses was at super speed again, so of course we were already a long way from town by now. He knew. What I meant, yes and no, he said, I have not pulled you out of the world you know. Rather, I have pulled another facet of this world closer to you, or pulled you closer to it, I should say. I am master of the spirit realm and the material realm together, now with me. You dwell in both. I didn't say anything else that night. I had a lot to think about. I thought, and Moses ran, and the wind blew. I've been riding with Moses for a while now. I think I've counted about forty days since then, in fact, I look into that silver mirror every day, and every day it seems that streak of white in my hair gets whiter. Some days more than others. Moses said that one day my mane, it's funny he actually calls it that, will be all white, like his. Until then, I ride, and I hold tight to his mane while he steers us, And even though Moses never really tells me where we're going next, I hold on tight and let him run wild with the wind.
1: That was Timothy G. Huguenin's The Apocalypse of Moses, as read by Scott Fulps. Scott Fulps is a narrator and voiceover artist. When not disturbing your dreams with tales of horror, Scott can be found in Washington, D.C., where he works as a restaurateur. He currently resides in that most haunted of commonwealths, Virginia. Thank you, Scott. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell, for now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com talestoterrify tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts? Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced By Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini. With original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we summon restless bones with more Tales to Terrify.